Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. This season, we're discussing the history of the Mughal Empire. This is episode 8-5, Central Asia and Timur. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Genghis Khan was the founder of the Mongol Empire, uniting the tribes of Mongolia. By the time Genghis Khan died in 1227, the Mongol Empire controlled much of China and Central Asia. Even after his death, the Mongols continued to expand, conquering Baghdad in 1258. However, civil wars, plague, and its sheer size led to the Mongol Empire splitting into four khanates. And with that, let's discuss the life of Timur the Lame. The Chagatai Khanate Our story begins in the Chagatai Khanate, a division of the former Mongol Empire. The Chagatai Khanate, with its capital in Uzbekistan, was initially ruled by Chagatai Khan, one of Genghis Khan's sons and his descendants. Chagatai Khan ruled from 1226 to 1242. The Chagatai Khanate was based in Central Asia and included northern Pakistan, Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, parts of Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, as well as parts of Russia and Western China. Over time, the Mongol rulers of the Chagatai Khanate converted to Islam, as did the Mongols of the Golden Horde. The Chagatai Khanate covered some very rough terrain, including steppes, forests, and desert. The steppes were dry, grassy plains. They did not have enough trees to be considered a forest. Yet, they were not dry enough to be considered a desert. The desert portion of the Chagatai Khanate was the Taklamakan Desert in what is now the Jinjiang province of modern China. This is the homeland of the Uyghur people and is considered part of western China now. But back then, this region was part of the eastern Chagatai Khanate. The Chagatai Khanate did include some large cities, but for the most part, the people there were nomadic. In the 13th century, the Chagatai Khanate split in two. The eastern, more nomadic part of the Khanate became Mogulistan. However, the western part would continue to fracture further and further into several smaller feuding khanates and fiefdoms. The Early Life of Timur the Lame Timur was born in the 1330s in a town about 50 miles from Samarkand. He belonged to a noble family of the Barlas clan, a Turkified Mongol clan. This meant that they were ethnically Mongol, but culturally and linguistically Turkic. By this time, most of the Barlas clan had accepted Islam, including Timur's father. Most likely, his father belonged to the Naqshbandi Sufi Tariqa. As the son of a noble, Timur would have grown up in a relatively comfortable environment. 
Like all Mongol boys, he would have learned to hunt and ride from an early age. And as a member of a well-to-do family, he would have likely learned to speak several languages. There are several stories about how Tamur earned his nickname. One story says he was shot in the leg with an arrow while trying to steal someone's sheep. Another story says he was injured in battle while fighting as a mercenary. Whatever the truth behind his injury, he became known as Temuri Lang, which means Temur the Lame in Persian. Temur's Rise to Power Temur's uncle, Haji Beg, was chief of the Barlas clan, the clan that Temur's family belonged to. One day, when Temur was in his early 30s, Haji Beg sent him to meet and negotiate with a warlord named Tugluk. In the early 1360s, this Tugluk had captured much of the eastern part of the Chagatai Khanate. Haji Beg did not want to submit to Tugluk and was looking for a way out. However, Timur betrayed his uncle and sided with the warlord Tugluk. Get used to this because Timur betrays several people in his rise to power. Since Haji Beg did not want to submit, Tugluk shoved him aside and appointed Timur as the head of the Barless clan. Well, not long after that, Timur conspired with a local chieftain named Amir Hussein to overthrow Tugluk. Not only did Timur betray his uncle, he also betrayed the man he betrayed his uncle for. To solidify their conspiracy, Timur married Amir Hussein's sister. Regardless, the plot failed and Timur, his wife, and Amir Hussein were forced into exile. While in exile, Timur and Amir Hussein built a fairly large army which they used to topple Tugluk's son and successor. With this victory, Timur and Amir Hussein became rulers of much of the western Chakatai Khanate. Timur's wife died in 1370. This apparently freed him to betray his former brother-in-law, Amir Hussein. He besieged Amir Hussein at Balkh, that's an area in northern Afghanistan. Eventually, Timur had his former conspirator, Amir Hussein, assassinated, allowing him to capture Balkh. Now, Timur controlled much of the western Chagatai Khanate all by himself. As it turns out, Amir Hussein's wife was a descendant of Genghis Khan. After defeating and killing her husband, Timur decided to marry her. This union helped to raise Timur's status. Growing an Empire After capturing Balkh, Timur continued to expand his territory. Within 10 years of defeating Amir Hussein, Timur controlled everything from Xinjiang in western China to the Caspian Sea. The following excerpt that describes Timur's soldiers comes from the book Tamerlane, The Life and Legacy of the Legendary Mongol Conqueror. 
The core of Timur's armies was the same as that of the Mongol armies of previous centuries, a highly mobile cavalry using composite bows. The bow was crafted from composite materials, including wood and horn, and required considerable strength to draw. It was shorter than weapons used by unmounted archers, such as the English longbow. Mongol soldiers began training and using the bow in horsemanship when they were boys, and by adulthood, they were usually competent archers. Mongol archers had a variety of different hunting and war arrows. There were heavy arrows for armored enemies, lighter arrows for sniping at infantry, and arrows that could hold naphtha to shoot as fire arrows. The soldiers also had swords and lances for close combat, and the army used the artillery of the day. Timur's control over such a large territory allowed him to also exert control over the Silk Road. There were two main routes going through Central Asia at this time. A northern route that went from Crimea in the Ukraine through southern Russia, then Central Asia, before finally terminating in China. There was also a southern route starting from Egypt, then going through Syria, on to Persia, then on to Samarkand before finally terminating in China. Timur diverted much of the traffic from the northern route, which went through territory he did not control, to the southern route, which he did control. In this manner, his territory benefited from the taxes, fees, and income associated with the Silk Road. Timur's favorite city was Samarkand in Uzbekistan. He loved it so much, he even made it his capital. He built various mosques and other buildings in Samarkand. He also transferred thousands of people, often craftsmen, from the lands he conquered to Samarkand. Like the Mongols, whom he wanted to emulate so much, these were often the only people he spared during his brutal attacks. These captives who were forcibly relocated to Samarkand were engineers, architects, glassblowers, painters, and many others. These craftsmen, these people were critical in turning Samarkand into one of the greatest cities of the medieval world. Timur's Campaign Against the Golden Horde Timur's war against the Golden Horde was perhaps the longest and most difficult of all of his campaigns. It lasted from 1386 to 1395. The Golden Horde, which was one of the four khanates that emerged from the Mongol Empire, stretched from Ukraine, across southern Russia, and onto the Caspian Sea. In the 1370s, two Mongol rulers were competing for control of this territory. The two opponents, named Tukhtimish and Uruz Khan, were both Sunni Muslims, both descendants of Genghis Khan, and both culturally Turkic but ethnically Mongol. Eventually, Uduz Khan defeated Tukhtimish, and the latter sought refuge with Timur. Timur happily obliged Tukhtimish and joined in on the struggle for control of the Golden Horde. In 1380, he launched an invasion of southern Russia. For Timur, these kind of moves were similar to playing chess, one of his favorite games. 
This excerpt from the same book, Tamerlane, The Life and Legacy of the Legendary Mongol Conqueror, describes his love for the game of chess. Timur enthusiastically played chess and was reputedly an excellent player, though to be fair, his success may have been due to the fact that beating him in anything was probably a bad idea. One version of the famous game became known as Tamerlane Chess and is still played by a few enthusiasts. The Tamerlane chessboard had 112 squares rather than the 64 squares on the standard board, and Tamerlane Chess also added a number of pieces including two camels, two giraffes, two sentinels, two war machines, and a vizier. The giraffes may seem like an odd choice given that their natural habitat was thousands of miles away, but several had been acquired by menageries in Persia. Timur eventually defeated Uruz Khan, which allowed Tukhtamish to take control over the Golden Horde. Tukhtamish took advantage of this newfound power and went to war against the Rus kingdoms, burning Moscow to the ground in 1382. While this was going on, Timur was marching south into Afghanistan. Timur expanded his territory into southern Afghanistan, then on to Persia, culminating with the conquest of Herat in 1383. By 1385, Timur had captured most of what is now Iran, along with Azerbaijan, Armenia, and Iraq. While Timur was campaigning down in Afghanistan and Persia, Tukhtamish took the opportunity to betray him and invaded Azerbaijan. Timur responded by invading Tukhtamish's land. These two armies finally clashed in 1391 at the Battle of Kondurcha River in Volga, Bulgaria. Timur was victorious and Tukhtamish fled the battlefield. Over the next couple of years, Tukhtamish rebuilt his army and invaded Timur's territory in the Caucasus. This led to another major battle in 1395 called the Battle of Terek River in the northern Caucasus Mountains. Once again, Timur was victorious. The Grand Duchy of Lithuania used this chaos in the Caucasus to expand his territory into Belarus and Ukraine. Timur promptly marched against the Lithuanians, defeating them as well. Since they now shared a common enemy, Tokhtamish now took refuge with the Lithuanians. The Lithuanians took him in, provided him with another army, and sent him off to fight Timur. In 1399, Timur and Tokhtamish once again faced off at the Battle of Vorskla River. And once again, Timur was victorious. And once again, Tokhtamish had to flee the battlefield. But this time, he was murdered in Siberia a few years later. Ironically, Timur did not really seem interested in directly ruling any part of the Golden Horde. He preferred to support and prop up local rulers instead. Timur's Campaign Against the Delhi Sultanate This was an odd campaign as Timur did not really have a reason to even invade the Delhi Sultanate. He did not want to conquer northern India. The Delhi Sultanate did not border any of his territory, 
and he held no previous grievances against them. The only explanation for Timur's invasion of the Delhi Sultanate in northern India was greed and because he could. The Delhi Sultanate, after all, was very rich. The ruler of the Delhi Sultanate, Feroz Shah Tughluq, died in 1388. This led to a succession crisis which weakened the Delhi Sultanate. And this gave Timur both an opportunity and an excuse to invade. Timur began his invasion of India in 1398 by besieging the city-state of Batnar, which is now called Hanumangar, in Rajasthan, India. The city held out as long as it could, but eventually succumbed to Timur's forces. Timur ordered all of the city's defenders massacred and enslaved their wives and children. Then his soldiers sacked the city, killing most of the city's inhabitants. From Batner, Timur marched towards Delhi. He forged a path of destruction through India, brutally sacking and destroying several villages and small towns along the way. By the time he reached Delhi, everyone knew his reputation and everybody knew who he was, so most of the inhabitants had already fled. In late 1398, Nasiruddin Mahmud Tughluq, son of the former Sultan Feroz Shah Tughluq, prepared his army to fight Timur. Before the battle began, Timur decided to inflict some psychological warfare on his opponents. Timur's army had acquired tens of thousands of captives during his invasion of India. He ordered all of them brought out into the open and slaughtered in plain sight of the Delhi Sultanate's army. It is estimated anywhere between 40,000 and 100,000 captives were killed within a few hours. With that ghastly business out the way, the fighting began. Timur's army easily outnumbered the Delhi Sultanate. The only advantage the Delhi Sultanate had was their war elephants. But Timur knew how to neutralize them. His soldiers stacked dry grass on their camels' backs, set the grass on fire, then sent the scared camels running after the elephants. When the elephants saw these burning camels coming after them, they panicked and wreaked havoc in their own ranks. Ultimately, Timur was victorious, defeating the Delhi Sultanate. After the victory, Timur's soldiers sacked Delhi for 15 days. They took slaves, jewelry, elephants, and anything else they could find of value. They also pillaged most of the wealth of Delhi's treasury. Timur also captured thousands of craftsmen and artisans to be shipped back to Samarkand. Despite all the damage he inflicted, Timur did not bother to add the Delhi Sultanate to his domain. He simply took the plunder and the slaves back to Samarkand, leaving the Delhi Sultanate shattered and in ruins. It would take nearly a century for the Delhi Sultanate to recover from this tragedy. Timur's Campaign in Syria In the year 1400, the ruler of Damascus executed two of Timur's representatives. Timur responded by marching on Syria. He captured Aleppo in late 1400, then went on to capture Hama and then Homs. 
A few weeks later, he put Damascus under siege. Before long, Damascus also fell, and Timur got down to the business of negotiating a tribute. Initially, Timur demanded huge sums of money as tribute. Not satisfied with the city's initial payments, he kept demanding more and more wealth from the people of Damascus. But no matter how much they gave him, Timur was certain they were still holding out on him. Finally, he ordered his generals to sack the city and take everything they could. His soldiers went from house to house, torturing the citizens of Damascus to make them turn over any wealth that may have been hidden. Once he was satisfied he had stripped Damascus of all the wealth he could get, he ordered all of the city's craftsmen and youths, both men and women, brought to his camp. Just like in Delhi, these young people were forcibly relocated to Samarkand and other parts of his empire. Then he ordered the city burned, though there are some reports that state the fire broke out by accident. Allah knows best. Interestingly, the great Muslim historian, Ibn Khaldun, witnessed and recorded much of this. He had traveled from Egypt to Damascus with the Mamluk army that was sent to defend Damascus against Timur. When he learned Ibn Khaldun was in Damascus, Timur sent a message inviting him to meet in his camp. According to Ibn Khaldun, their meeting went pretty well. Timur asked Ibn Khaldun about the many places he visited, about affairs in North Africa, and about the state of the caliphate. Remember, the descendants of the Abbasid caliphate were now living under the protection of the Mamluks at this time. Ibn Khaldun reported that Timur treated him very well. Timur gave the scholar a letter of security to protect him while his soldiers ransacked the city of Damascus. This excerpt from Tamerlane, the life and legacy of the legendary Mongol conqueror, further describes Ibn Khaldun's meeting with Timur. He asked Ibn Khaldun questions about places such as Kuwaita and Tangier. Timur asked Ibn Khaldun to write a report on North Africa, its people, its places, its politics, its mountains, and its rivers. Ibn Khaldun quickly wrote the report over several days and submitted it to the Mongol leader, who he said was very intelligent and very perspicacious, addicted to debate and argumentative about what he knows and also about what he does not know. Ibn Khaldun condemned the destruction of the great mosque of Damascus in a fire that burned most of the captured city, though he noted, this was a dastardly and abominable act, but the changes in affairs are in the hands of Allah, and he does with his creatures as he wishes and decides in his kingdom as he wills. Timur versus the Ottomans Timur's conquest of Damascus and Syria brought him into close proximity with Anatolia and the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire only controlled about half of Anatolia, but was rapidly growing. It seemed inevitable these two superpowers would eventually clash. Timur's empire, however, was much larger than the Ottomans at this time. But, in the long run, the Ottoman Empire lasted much longer than Timur's. We discussed the Battle of Ankara between the Ottoman Empire, led by Sultan Bayezid I, 
and the Timurids in Season 7, Episode 3 of the Islamic History Podcast. Here's a clip of that episode. With the Ottoman victory at Nicopol, they completed their conquest of Bulgaria. But soon, they were faced with a new threat. In Central Asia, a new Muslim ruler had risen to power intent on resurrecting the fractured Mongol Empire. Timur, also known as Tamerlane in English, claimed to be a descendant of Genghis Khan. His ruthless conquests allowed him to expand his empire from Uzbekistan down to Persia and into Anatolia. And that's where he and the Ottomans came into conflict. The Ottomans did not yet control all of Anatolia. In fact, much of eastern Anatolia was controlled by smaller beyliks loyal to either the Ottomans or to Timur. These beyliks were caught between two Muslim superpowers. Those who did not like the Ottomans joined the Timurids, while many of Timur's opponents sought refuge with the Ottomans. In 1401, five years after Nicopol, Timur moved into eastern Anatolia, capturing Ottoman territory and vassals. After Nicopol, Bayezid had put Constantinople under siege again. But now, he had no choice but to lift the siege and head east into Anatolia. The two forces clashed at Ankara in central Anatolia in 1402. The two armies were equal in numbers, but the Ottomans were at a disadvantage. First, they were reeling from two brutal conflicts, the Battle of Kosovo in 1389 and the Nikopol Crusade in 1396. Second, Bayezid had pushed his troops to the limit trying to catch up with Timur in Anatolia. Finally, Ottoman territory was much smaller than Timur's. The Ottomans controlled much of the Balkans and about half of Anatolia. Timur controlled Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Persia, parts of Iraq, Syria, the Caucasus, and roughly a quarter of Anatolia. Timur also had war elephants. Bayezid was supported by his Serbian vassal, Stefan Lazarevich, and his son, Suleiman Chelebi. Unfortunately for Bayezid, he also depended on thousands of Tartar mercenaries. During the heat of battle, these mercenaries turned against the Ottomans and switched sides to join Timur. Stefan Lazarevich and Suleiman Chalabi managed to escape with their lives, but Sultan Bayezid was captured. Bayezid died in captivity a few months later. With Bayezid's death, the Ottomans plunged into civil war as his sons fought each other for the throne. After this victory at Ankara, the European world suddenly became interested in Timur. The European powers of this time were very concerned about Ottoman expansion into the Balkans. Having been defeated by the Ottomans on more than one occasion, the European powers were eager to meet and perhaps even ally with this man who had beaten their nemesis. The Kingdom of Spain sent an embassy led by Roy González de Clavijo to meet with Timur. The Spaniard traveled to Samarkand to meet Timur and recorded his journey along the way. De Clavijo's writings are very valuable from a historical standpoint. One of the things that Roy González de Clavijo described in great detail were the elaborate feasts held in Timur's palace in Samarkand. 
He also made note of the copious amounts of wine consumed during these festivals. Timur's Final Expedition As discussed in the previous episode, the Ming Dynasty finally overthrew the Yuan Dynasty in 1368. The Yuan Dynasty, established by Kublai Khan, was the Mongol dynasty that ruled over much of China. In 1395, the Ming dynasty sent a mission to Samarkand to meet with Timur. But as soon as they arrived, Timur had them thrown in prison. The Yunglo emperor, ruler of the Ming dynasty, sent another mission a few years later, sometime in the early 1400s. This new mission demanded Timur free the previous mission and pay tribute to the Ming dynasty. Timur responded by throwing them in prison as well. But this last mission angered Timur, who felt insulted by their demands for tribute. He decided to punish the Ming dynasty and prepare to launch an invasion of China. However, as the army prepared to depart Samarkand in early 1405, Timur fell ill. He grew so sick, he could not even walk on his own and had to be carried in a litter. Timur the Lame died a few weeks later near Tashkent. He never even made it out of Uzbekistan. Timur's Legacy After his death, Timur's empire was divided between his sons and grandsons. Not surprisingly, fighting soon broke out amongst them. Eventually, Timur's youngest son, Shah Rukh, wound up as the emperor. But when Shah Rukh died in 1447, the empire fell into chaos again. Before long, Timur's empire was hopelessly divided into a bunch of small, weak states. Abu Sa'id Mirza a nephew of Shah Rukh briefly united several of these states into a single unit. But when he died in 1469, Timur's realm again collapsed and disintegrated. One of Abu Sa'id's sons, named Umar Sheikh Mirza, ruled over a small region in Central Asia called Fergana. On February 24th, 1483, Umar Sheikh's first wife, a Mongol princess named Kutluk Hanum, gave birth to his first son. They named the boy Zahiruddin Muhammad, but the world would come to know him simply as Babur. His story begins next week. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you have an Apple device, you know, iPhone, iPad, or any Mac computer, open the Apple Podcast app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you prefer to use Spotify, Simply open the Spotify app and, again, search for Islamic History Exclusive. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash islamichistory. 
If you'd like to know what you'll be hearing on Islamic History Exclusive, just stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium series. Also, be sure to follow Islamic History Podcast on YouTube and TikTok for additional content. And finally, as always, special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Siroj for his research and support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Muttaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season two of the Umayyad Caliphate, presented by Islamic History Exclusive. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail, and this is episode 2-5. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. The Umayyads defeat the Peacock Army again at the Battle of Maskin a few months after retaking Kufa. Ibn al-Ash'ath and fragments of the Peacock Army flee east through Persia towards Afghanistan. Thousands of troops break off from Ibn al-Ash'ath and relocate to Khurasan, where Yazid ibn Muhalab is in charge. After a brief battle, Yazid ibn Muhalab sends several of these captured troops to Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, who executes most of them. And with that, we will conclude our story on the Peacock Army. So, as we left off in the last episode, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf was in the process of doling out executions of the Peacock Army captives from Khorasan. But there were two more captives, two final captives, whose stories were significant that I wanted to discuss separately. So, Hajjaj called forth a man named Fayruz, who was one of the highest-ranking members of the prisoners of these captives from the Peacock Army. Fairuz was a very wealthy man. Hajjaj ibn Yusuf knew him from before all of these issues started happening, before the rebellion started happening. Hajjaj ordered Fairuz to list all of his assets because he intended to seize them. So Fairuz asked if doing so will spare his life, and Hajjaj ibn Yusuf said it would not. So Fairuz responded that you're not going to take my wealth and my life. So Hajjaj ibn Yusuf said, okay, he put him aside and went on to deal with the other prisoners. So while Fairuz is sitting to the side, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf goes to the prisoners and he executes most of them as we know. There is one other prisoner I want to talk about and don't worry, we're going to come back to Fairuz in just a moment. This other prisoner was named Abdullah ibn Amir. When Abdullah ibn Amir is brought before Hajjaj ibn Yusuf as a captive, Abdullah ibn Amir warns Hajjaj ibn Yusuf that he will never see paradise if he forgave Yazid ibn Muhalab. So Hajjaj ibn Yusuf asked, why is that? Abdullah ibn Amir goes on to explain that Yazid ibn Muhalab freed the Yemeni prisoners from amongst the Peacock army that had invaded Khorasan, but he sent the northern Arabs on to Iraq to be executed. Now, we discussed one of these prisoners, and this was the only one that I found mentioned in Tariqatabadi so far, but perhaps there were others. We mentioned how 
a man named Abdurrahman ibn Talha had paid off Muhallab's debts and because of this, his son was pardoned by Yazid ibn Muhallab. This was discussed in episode 4. Well, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, when he heard this, because he's a Hajjaj ibn Yusuf is from the Thaqif tribe, which is from Ta'if, which is right very close to uh, Mecca. These are all considered northern Arab tribes. Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, he thinks about what Abdullah ibn Ahmed just told him. He gets real quiet and he thinks about, about this. But then he says, you know, well, this has nothing to do with you. What does this have to do with your situation? And orders Abdullah ibn Ahmed to be executed. But even though Abdullah ibn Ahmed is executed, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf doesn't forget what he told him. He doesn't forget about his testimony regarding Yazid ibn Muhallab, and it continues to rotate and, and linger in Hajjaj ibn Yusuf's mind. This is going to come into play later. Not this episode, but in the next episode, inshallah. Okay, so that's one of the two remaining captives that I wanted to discuss, Abdullah ibn Amir. So let's go back to Fayruz. This was the one who was very wealthy, whom Hajjaj ibn Yusuf has set aside. But before we talk about Fayruz, let's take a, a short diversion and talk about Persian sugarcane. You probably didn't expect this, but Persia has had a long history of growing sugarcane. Before the Arab conquest of Persia, Persia had been a major grower of sugarcane and a producer of sugar. But the Persian elites, they kept the, the secrets of sugar cultivation and sugar processing secret for centuries, allowing them to maintain a monopoly on sugar. Well, when the Muslims conquered Persia, they got hold of the secrets and eventually it wasn't a secret any longer. The word got out and as the Muslims conquered, they took the information of sugar along with them everywhere. Within a few years, Muslims and Arabs were using sugar regularly and it was no longer just available in Persia and it was no longer just a Persian secret. However, interesting fact, Europeans did not even know about sugar until the Crusades. It wasn't until they invaded the Muslim world hundreds of years later, hundreds of years after the Umayyad Caliphate fell apart, 